If I don't have the windows open, I will possibly die of heat. So we might just have to you have a little bit of You're leaving the back. windows open. Yeah. That is not a question. As your elder, you have to listen to me. <laughs> yeah, we might just have to do a little bit of background noise from me for this. <laughs> oh, no. I, you know, I like it, I like to put a little bit of this in at the beginning, but this 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 episode is going to be a monster to edit, so none of this is yeah, going in. Yeah, none. Zero of it. I'm Julia, a Doctor Who enthusiast. I've been wanting to get into classic Doctor Who, but there's a lot. Luckily, I have my friend Jonah. Hello, that's me. A legit Brit and Doctor Who uber nerd. That's not how you bitched it. To guide me through the basics of understanding classic Who. So, Jonah, what are we watching this time? This episode, Marco Polo. So to start off, oh Marco Polo, <laughs> Julia. Before watching <laughs> yeah. this, did you know much about Marco Polo? No, um, I know that I learned about Marco Polo at some point. I mean, I knew he was an explorer, and I knew that there's a pool game where Marco closes their eyes, and in the like, have you played this pool game? Am I just explaining I haven't, something? But I dumb? know to what you are oh. referring. Yeah, okay. So there's like one person who is Marco and the yeah. rest are Polos. And Polos have their eyes open and are trying to evade Marco. <laughs> Water Polo. No. <laughs> no, not. yeah, I know. <laughs> that's different. Yeah. I, I think that's more than... Because I don't think I ever learned about him in school or anything. I think my introduction to Marco Polo was was either this when I was like in my teens watching watching through for the first time or... That scene in the 2005 Fantastic Four where Doctor Doom is playing Marco Polo with the Invisible Woman. I think that's... I really knew no. that. Oh! <laughs> so he wasn't someone I, I think I knew anything about until until really this rewatch when I did a lot of research on who he was. Well, I mean, I just don't understand how the pool game works, you know? Like no, why? to be honest, Did neither do I. Lost that wasn't the area I focused on, and now I'm, and now I'm like, should I have? Not, should I have? Anyway, should you have looked that up? Yes, I feel like I, I should have. I watched two like documentaries on Marco Polo. Um, oh wow, you really prepared for yeah. this? Yeah, I didn't do shit. <laughs> I've also watched five episodes of the Netflix Marco Polo series as well. Wow. So you're a regular professional. What do you know about Marco Polo? Uh, he is. You're right. He's a Venetian explorer who. Um, so he he's he's famous for a book um, which was written by a man called uh, Ros, Rosticello, who he was in prison with. And Marco Polo recounted when he got back to Venice his story of traveling um, to the court of Kublai Khan. Um, Marco Polo went to prison? Yeah, so there was a war going on. I can't remember the name of this war when he got back. At the age of like 20 or whatever, mm -hmm. he leaves Venice and travels with his father and his uncle through the Middle East, up through Iran, I think, and up to uh, the Mongolian Empire. Mm -hmm. And then he stays at the court of Kublai Khan for many, many years and then eventually returns to Venice, but on the way is imprisoned 
by whatever warring factions are going on at the time. Whilst he's in prison, he meets this man, uh, Rusticello, who writes this book based on Marco, the story Marco Bello is telling. And the book comes out and um, I think uh, gets some mixed reviews in terms of people (laughs) believing him. There's a quarter in Venice, which is where his, I think, which is named after the Polos. I can't remember the, the name in the the actual name of it um but it's referred to as he's like um the liar or deceiter's mm-hmm. um square or something because people oh, didn't believe no. him because it was so fantastical Fan- fanciful fantastical yeah and also it's it might have been possibly that rusticello embellished some bits or or there's, so there's a lot no, of... No, I bet none of it is embellished. It is all completely true. There are still some people today who don't believe that he managed to get all that way. And that what might have happened is that he met people who had gone further and recounted their stories because there were certain uh... inconsistencies and whatever. I don't know. I was convinced by the documentary I saw, or one of them. One, yeah. That he did, in fact, do all of those things. Yeah. That's awesome. What... Did you use to watch these episodes since they are gone? They yes. are nowhere. They do not exist. I did it several times. Okay. So I I, I watched the loose cannon uh, version. Mm-hmm. I think the same one as you. Yeah, that's what I'm. What I'm using. I watched yeah. the color one because I think last time I watched it, I watched the black and white telly snap mm-hmm. one. A lot of the Doctor Who stories are no longer with us, sadly. And this is our first, this is our first one we're coming across all gone. Uh, uh, quite mm-hmm. a few of them, there are, there are some episodes and we don't have other episodes. And there are some cases where episodes were thought to be lost and then they've turned up again. Because what, what basically used to happen is BBC only had a certain amount of film or storage space and they junk a lot of canisters of these episodes. But also episodes would be shipped out to other countries to play. Um, and then some, so sometimes they turn up. Mm-hmm. But um, so there's a really good documentary, which I'm going to link in the notes for this episode by Josh Snares, talking about the history of uh, missing Doctor Who episodes and where all of them ended up and when they were destroyed and where some mm-hmm. might still be found. Go go watch that if, if people are interested <laughs> in this, because um, it's a lot more detailed than I'll have. But there's a really frustrating bit in it where someone, I think in Nigeria, calls up the BBC BBC is like, hey, we've got all these canisters of Doctor Who that you sent us. Do you want any of them back? And the person, the other one's like, nah, nah, we don't need <gasps> them back and they destroy them. Uh, oh my God. So as far but as we're aware. That person is kicking themselves right now. Yeah. Like, oh my God. So as far as we're aware, none of this exists. Um, but what we do have, um, well, we have, a bu- we have a bunch of things. We have telesnaps for this, which, so telesnaps. A man called John Cura is responsible for creating a very specific camera, allowing him to take photos of live TV, which I don't know if you ever tried to take photos of an old TV and you get all these lines of like, yeah. yeah. So that he happens a, on my computer yeah, yeah. too. So he ha- he developed this, um, a, a camera that allowed him to take photos of the live broadcast and he then licensed them back to the BBC to use in promotional material. So we have, we have those. Um, and we also have um, fan recordings from the time. So people would record their TV. So I, I talked before about Big Finish. Mm-hmm. The idea of Big Finish is like listening to the Doctor Who stuff is because people, before they had the ability to, you know, tape TV and stuff, they would just tape record the audio track of the show. So um, there are two people, I think, Gray, uh, Graham Strong and David Holman are the people who's who recorded this episode 
at the, the serial at the time, I think they're the two best quality ones that are used in the loose canon reconstructions, which is the ones we watched, which is a fan project where they took the telly snaps and a lot of the behind the scenes photos and basically create something you can watch, which again, so if you're wanting to watch or experience these missing episodes, they're available on daily motion to watch. Or you could do what I did, is which is do that, but also listen to the the, the BBC soundtrack that they released to this episode with uh, William Russell narrating, or also the audiobook of the novelization, which I listened to. Oh man, you did. You went above and beyond. Oh, now I feel really bad that I have not tried very hard to watch this. I kind of keep thinking that I should have listened to the novelizations of the of the <laughs> last three. So I don't know. I'm, I might. I might see if I can do some of the other ones as well. Um, but it's. Okay. But um, it's actually narrated by Zania Merton, who plays Ping Cho in the serial. Mm-hmm. She died in 2018, just before the actual audio book was released. Sadly, but she's she's the voice who read it. So that's nice. Oh, that's cool. That's very cool. One of the other things we do have left over. So um, Boris Hussain, who directed mm-hmm. um, the first serial, yep. also directed. Um, six out of seven episodes of this. Oh, did he? Yes. He took a break for episode four. And for every, so for every episode except four, we have amazing sort of behind the scenes photos. Yeah. I really liked the photos. I was going to ask you like where they came from because I was like, how do we not have the episode, but we have like these photos of it. It just didn't make sense to me. So we talked, I think, last time um, because the last two episodes were really budget saving. Is because they were they were you know, like they splurged on this. The sets are amazing. The costumes are fantastic. Ah, yeah, that was another one of my my things. Was I really liked the costumes in this? It looks amazing. So I think they were just taking lots of pictures of it because. Because it looks so good. It looks great, yeah. I think if you go to the Doctor Who website, there's a, a gallery of a bunch of these uh, from this serial. Mm, Again, I mm-hmm. think I've I think I've put the link. You did put the I clicked on it last night. It was like, ooh, this is cool. Yeah, so if people want to look at those, I really recommend it. I really, really like this story. I think the first time I watched through when I was a lot younger, I maybe skimmed over it because it was the first missing one and I was sort of, my attention span wasn't there. But this time around, I just absolutely fell in love with it. But maybe as well, it's because a lot of it is sort of in the mind's eye imagination if you're just sort of listening to. I don't know. I This serial is really hard for me to pay attention to Yeah, because there's nothing to watch. And so then I like get into the habit of listening to it and I'll look away and just like look out the window. And then there's like a silence and it has text going along the bottom of the screen that I end up missing because I wasn't. Yeah. I was listening to it. I wasn't watching the still pictures that are like, it's like watching a slideshow. Listening to the, either the audiobook or the, the version with narration mm-hmm. is probably worth it then as well. If, if people have, yeah. if you have that problem um, in terms of watching the, just the still images, um, mm-hmm. cause then you can just sort of go about your day. Which is, I think. I mean, at this point, I probably should do that because I have a lot of things to do in my days. Yes. Getting ready to move. Yeah. Yeah. Well, should we start start plowing through this? Yeah. Because it's going to be a long monkey, isn't it? (laughs) Um, Right off the bat, though, I mean, even though it was hard to watch, I do like the colors. Like the colored intro is really pretty. And so I just wanted to point that out. Like. It's hard. It's 
hard to pay attention to, but the colors are very cool. Part one, the roof of the world. Having narrowly escaped its destruction at the very birth of the galaxy, the TARDIS has landed on a snowy mountainside. Still damaged from their latest brush with death, the lights in the console room are dimmed. The ship is in need of repair before it can take off again, and currently unable to provide food or water. Which is definitely more relevant later, but I did forget between the first episode and I think the second one (laughs) that the TARDIS just couldn't, because it wasn't like, yeah. Anything that was specifically really pointed out. It was just like, oh, we, we don't have food or water. Yeah, it's a little bit hand wavy that none of the TARDIS is working properly, including the really useful food machine. But I think Yeah. I think in terms of in terms of the story, I think it'd be it, you wouldn't have the kind of survival narrative if they were just like be able to have an endless supply of water from a TARDIS. So I think narratively it's I can kind of like like yeah yeah no it makes sense i just completely forgot that the tardis couldn't do it so at one point in a later episode i was like why aren't they just getting water from the tardis like they have food and water the doctor suspects they're on earth where he'd been trying to pilot them though the air at this altitude is thin suggesting that if they are on earth they are among the himalayas or andes when they first exited the tardis Susan and Barbara had come across a giant footprint in the snow, and now, looking for firewood amongst the ice and rocks, Barbara spies a hulking figure watching them from afar. She calls out for Ian, but the creature is gone, save for more large footprints. They run back to find the others by the TARDIS, Barbara thinking it may be from some sort of creature, a yeti perhaps. But Ian thinks the footprint is more likely from a large fur-lined boot, suggesting a camp nearby. I think he also says that um, it's the, there's a footprint and perhaps it melted and that's why it's bigger. But I think it's definitely mm, the cliffhanger yeah, in the previous episode is meant to imply that there's a Yeti running about. Well, I was really excited for a Yeti. Well, um, wait, just just wait a few series. Oh, yeah? And we'll get some Yetis. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Okay. So, like oh, Monsters, Inc. Yeti? Uh, like the not, Abominable not, Snowman? Not quite. Yeti's oh. in the London Underground, but hold, hold, oh. and also in the Himalayas. They get two episodes, but we're getting way ahead of okay. ourselves. All right, all right. While they're talking, Susan spies the figure watching them again. It darts off when she shouts out, but the group gives chase, hoping to be led to its camp or other form of shelter. Following quickly among the rocks, they come face to face with the figure, but this time, he is not alone. The group find that they are surrounded by a number of fur-clad Mongolian warriors. The figure they had followed, though having a striking silhouette, is ornately dressed and steps forward to meet them. Ian explains they are lost travellers in need of shelter. The ornately dressed man turns to his warriors, addressing them instead, warning them that this area of the mountain evil spirits are known to appear and take on human form to trick travelling parties. Okay, so I don't know if this is just my brain misremembering, but I feel like there was a photo of hmm. the group that he was talking to, and there looked like a very suspicious, like, possibly spirit in the back of them. 
In terms of like, <laughs> you mean like a kind of like a like a ghostly blur, or just one yeah, of the well, one no, of the dudes? just someone that looked at, that looked shifty. I was like, if there's a a spirit in human form, there's someone here. <laughs> like that's this is where my brain was taking me. I was like, okay, so this is the story. We are going to have some sort of evil spirit ghost person following them around, taking on human ah. form. I well, was sadly mistaken. Well, no, you see, you see, we don't. I don't think we get any sort of when back in back in these old days a historical episode mm-hmm. doesn't have any supernatural or alien yeah stuff in it they don't come up with the idea of blending sci-fi and history until the third doctor okay all right i'll hang on until the third i just doctor, don't want you then. to feel disappointed every time that you expect there's going to be some <laughs> sort of like right well because the last one i was like no yeah. something in their head yeah <laughs> okay <clears throat> The warriors are halted by the arrival of another man, western in appearance, like them dressed in a fur hat and cloak. He denounces that the TARDIS travellers as spirits, commanding they lower their weapons in the name of Kublai Khan. Nearby, in a lavish tent, a young woman is preparing soup. She is addressed as Ping Cho by the western man who arrives with the crew from the TARDIS. He asks that the cold strangers be fed, and the young girl rushes to provide the shivering four with soup. The doctor in particular seems to be struggling with the altitude and is helped to a seat. After hearing the man use the name Kublai Khan, ruler of 13th century Asia, Barbara has a theory of who he might be. She asks if the man is called Marco Polo. I really love that Barbara figures it out. She she gets to put the pieces together. I love it when she does that. Um, and I mean, I uh, this is probably silly of me because I did not, I haven't thought of, I did not do the extensive research you did on Marco Polo, um, but I did not realize that Marco Polo was European. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's, he's, it's interesting as well. Watch so watching, um, watching the kind of Netflix series, which is is a weird watch. It's interesting. It's I thought it. I'd, I'd heard it wasn't very good. I think it's it's actually I quite enjoyed it. It suffers a bit from Game of Thrones syndrome mm. in that okay. I don't know how historically accurate it is. This story is there. There is a problematic element to it, which mm-hmm. I think we should probably address. Which is the name Ping Cho. I, that, I think there's an umbrella of that, which is yellow face is used quite often. Oh, thank you for saying that. Yeah. Because I couldn't tell from the pictures. Well, I was like, is is it? Or So the actress playing Ping Cho, who um who I already mentioned, uh Zinea mm-hmm. Merton uh is Asian. Mm-hmm. A lot of the extras are annoyingly, like in the background, mm-hmm. are actual Asian British actors. But then a lot of the other actors who appear aren't. Right. Like the ones that have the more, most of the lines. Yeah. All of the lines are not. Which is frustrating because. Yeah. They're there. You had the people. Yeah. Like it's, it's not that you didn't have anyone available. Yeah. You, you obviously did. I can't remember where I, uh, where this came from, but I, I, there was a quote from Warris Hussein talking about this serial because he quite, he was quite adamant of finding uh, an Asian actress to play Ping Cho. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, as you're right, the name Ping Cho is not an actual name. Um, when you Google it, it just comes up with 
her fan wiki. Yes, it does. Um, yep. There are a couple of other things like that in like destinations where I tried to find the where mm-hmm. they're referring to and it would give me like a dish. <laughs> so I don't know if some of these places are real or not that they go to. Some of them definitely are and some of them I, I'm not really sure. Um, uh, so that when, when they're referring to where they are, they're saying they're in Cathay, mm-hmm. um, which is, I think, I think I read it, it's, it's a European term used to refer to this at Northern China at this time, um, which is the Yuan dynasty ruled by, uh, the Mongol empire. Mm-hmm. But China, I, th- to the South is what is in terms of culturally is China, like where the, where the Song mm-hmm. Dynasty is, is quite. Conv- I don't. Again, I don't know anything about Chinese history until I sort of tried to find out what was right or wrong about yeah, this episode. So, I, I mean, yeah. to be fair, there's a lot of layers. I think to Chinese history. Um, I read a book last year called "She Who Becomes the Sun" that took place in China. I'm pretty sure, and it also was like, yeah. Is one of the, those. Some of the things are real. Some of the things are not. And so it was looking up and figuring out. Is that out the, what... the one female emperor? Is that about? Yes. Yes. Yep. I can't remember where she comes in the. Yeah. In, no, yeah. it was is like literally her story and how she got up to where she was. Yeah. So we're in we're in the 13th century at the moment. So Kublai Khan, who we've had mentioned, is the grandson of uh, Chinggis Khan, who conquered from I think it's from like Korea to the Ukraine in terms of a massive amount. Are you of, talking about Genghis Khan? Yeah, Chinggis Khan is is a more accurate pronunciation. Oh my god! <laughs> oh, this is fun. Yeah. Um, just the the difference. I think there's an even more accurate pronunciation than that, but I can't remember what it is. I just remember that it's Chinggis Khan, not Genghis Khan. Except if you're singing the song by Mike Snow. We've in school definitely learned Genghis Khan. Yeah, I, I don't think that's But cr- it starts with a G. Yeah, so. but <laughs> also because we're referring to, when we refer to Shang, Shang Tu later, that's, I, again, there's a couple of things in this in terms of their westernized versions of pronunciation. So we're like yeah. two steps away from, yeah. from a correct thing, which is quite confusing. But Ping Cho is definitely not a correct, it's not a real name. I'm sorry if, mm. if there's anyone listening who your name is Ping Cho, please let me know. Please contact us and tell us that it's a real but name. I, I'm, I'm but I'm 95% certain that is not an authentic, that just is a, right. a couple of vaguely East Asian sounding, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> moving on. <laughs> uh, moving swiftly on. But yeah, I know, I, I, but I do think it's important to, to, to mention the yellow face because I think yeah. it, um, but as well, sorry, there wasn't one other thing is that I, there was a, I don't know if it was a theatre production on at this time with a lot of Asian British actors in it, I think. Um, but again, Boris Hussein apparently didn't want lots of the same faces from that to appear in this, which I, I, I don't know. Why? Maybe, maybe it made sense at the time. Okay. But it, again, again, it, it just strikes me as it's just it just feels like, you know, you could have just gone that little extra mile and just actually cast mm-hmm. because that uh, anyway, anyway. The man admits he is and introduces the woman with him as Ping Cho and the warrior as Lord Tagana. They are on the plain of Pamir, a platitude amongst the mountains between Central Asia and what would be known as Pakistan. They are on their way to Shangtu in China, or Cathay as Marco calls it. 
The year is 1289, and this region is not yet known by that name. Uh, in my own research, uh, did you know that Shangtu was also called the Shangdu and Xanadu? I didn't until again researching. Oh, it just made me think of the the ABBA song. Yeah, well, it's the Olivia Newton John film Xanadu. Oh, that too. And it's also the maybe uh, that's what I'm thinking of. In did the, ABBA do a song? I I don't know. I don't think so. I don't know. Oh. Well, but also in um, you ever seen Citizen Kane? No, his he so Citizen Kane. He's meant to be the like richest guy in America, and he his mm. co- his sort of lavish house and complex is called Xanadu, and it's sort of a uh-huh. reference to this. So Shang Shangdu, I think Shangdu is the is actually the the way that Marco Polo wrote it. Yeah, I don't know which is the correct pronunciation. We don't have the characters. For yeah, it. so I apologize again, but yeah, so but, he, but so in in Citizen Kane, his is calling his complex Xanadu is a reference to this semi mythical kingdom that mm-hmm. Kublai Khan had, um, which we'll talk a little bit more about when they actually get there in about seven episodes. Mm. But yeah, that night. Susan shares a tent with Ping Cho. The girl explains she is the daughter of a diplomat, travelling to Shangtu where she is to be married to an elder statesman. Susan is shocked to learn that Ping Cho has never met the man she is to marry, and that he is 75 years old. I literally said, oh shit, when she said that. Yeah. <laughs> um, that is too, that's too much of an age gap. That's a hard, hard pass from me. Obviously, she doesn't really have a choice, but, um... Yeah. She is 16 and he is 75. What do you even think they're going to talk about? Are they going to talk? I mean, she's probably not expected to talk, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so the character of Ping Cherry is based on a real person. Oh, yeah? Um, called uh, Princess Cockachin. I think that's how you pronounce that. Again, I'm sorry. Um, so she was a princess of uh, in the Mongol Chinese Yuan dynasty. So it's the true story of she was set to be married to an older man and Marco Polo escorted her to the palace mm-hmm. and we'll find out what happens when she arrives. Mm. But that also is true. Okay. Um, so okay. she's she's not meant to be this person, but she's sort of yeah. parallel to something that really did happen, uh-huh. supposedly, which is interesting. Yeah. The next morning... Marco Polo returns with Ian, Barbara and Susan to collect the TARDIS. A strange carriage that has no wheels but moves through the air. The night before, he and Tagana had talked. Tagana explained how he had seen all four appear from within their cabinet. Marco has seen magicians perform at the Khan's temple and assumes the doctor must be one of them. At the camp, the doctor is left with Ping Cho. Over more soup, the girl answers his questions about the party in Tegana, a supposed diplomat looking to meet with the Khan on behalf of a powerful warlord. Marco and the others return. He explains that the TARDIS has been lashed to the back of one of the carts in the caravan, so that it can be brought with them on their journey. However, they are not to enter the cabinet until they arrive at Lop, the bearers being superstitious about the magic within. And so the group begins to travel along the Silk Road with Marco Polo and his party. After many days of travel, they arrive at the town of Lop at the edge of the Gobi Desert. 
the desert desert. Is the name Gobi mean desert? Yeah. It's ah. like Sahara means desert. So ah. technically... It's just the Gobi. Right. Technically, you just say the Gobi. Like, you don't ah. add desert behind it. Um, yeah, no, that was something that I was looking up. Mostly because I didn't know whether desert was supposed to be capitalized with it. And then... Yeah. Uh, good old Google was like, actually, all of these just mean desert, uh, so <laughs> so you don't need it there. Yeah, um, but it sounds weird when you just say the Gobi. Yeah, but also I like that they they all just accept that the doctors and like the doctors a magician. Yeah, obviously this this dude's obviously just some magician. Um, mm-hmm. Well, have you seen the way he dresses? Of yeah. course, he's a magician. Yeah, and they all appear from this tiny cabinet that can appear on the top of a mountain. Yeah, it makes sense. Right, it's a this clown dude, car. Yeah, this does. <laughs> The group settle into a hotel, and the TARDIS is placed in the square. The doctor is keen to get to work on fixing the TARDIS, but Polo's men bar the way. Marco explains, while he is in the Khan's service, he is banned from returning home to Venice, that he hopes to gift the TARDIS to the Khan in exchange for his freedom, and the freedom of his father and uncle. The doctor is outraged. Marco promises to take care of the travellers and bring them to Venice with him, but the Khan is old, and if he dies without freeing Polo and his family, they will never be allowed to leave. I actually initially thought that he was going to try and get the TARDIS to take him back to Venice. Like, that's where I thought it was going, not he was going to gift it to the Khan. Yeah. I but mean, I guess he doesn't know that it travels through space. Yeah, I guess. he just knows that it's a, it's a wondrous artifact. Um, yeah. That he hopes to bargain his freedom with. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And also the idea that the Khan has to free him. If the Khan just dies, he's then stuck there. Um, yeah. Like, what is yeah. that? That's awful. But I mean, I guess that sort of makes sense because, like, the household staff doesn't change. Yeah. When, yeah. when a royal dies. So why would that change and so then he's at the whims of the next ruler yes um mm-hmm. who i think is the khan's son uh but and also i think marco polo in this is a really interesting character because he's sort of semi-antagonistic in terms of he's the reason they can't leave but he has a completely but he's simple- also really nice yeah he's he comes across really well uh mm-hmm. he's mark eden who plays him. Um, I don't know if you, when you were watching the loose cannon bit, the loose cannon reconstruction, there was a little clip at the beginning with an old man. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that, but that's Mark Eden who played Marco Polo. He, he reprised, oh, really? he recorded a special bit for the reconstruction. I did not actually watch that clip because oh. I was like, this isn't the episode. I don't know what this is. I didn't realize <laughs> it was that either. So I felt quite bad <laughs> when I realized. Um, so just warning people when you watch that, that's that's the actor who played Marco Polo. Um, uh-huh. But yeah, no, he comes across as like a genuinely like nice guy, but also you completely understand where he's coming from. Yeah, um, he's he's literally just doing his job. Yeah. And he's trying to make it as painless as possible. Yeah. The only thing that I think I have to say in like extra complaint, because I know I've had a few in there, um, the vibes between the end of the last episode and then the beginning of this one where they find the footprint Hmm. were completely different. Like they did not match up. And I like the end of the last one was fun loving family. 
And then the beginning of this one, it's suddenly like they're being hunted. <laughs> yeah. I I needed a little bit of a middle ground yeah. there. That was that was too much. It's interesting because the novelization, because it's a self-contained story, it has mm-hmm. to kind of um it kind of has to bullshit as well, like why the TARDIS isn't working. Um mm. because because we can kind of assume it's because it just malfunctioned. Um but also the novelization's really good in terms of it adds a lot of like more detail into sort of locations and like foods. And it talks about the chess set that Marco Polo has mm-hmm. and like some of the, you know, some of the, 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 you know, the mm-hmm. food and stuff they eat along the way. So it's, yeah, I, I quite enjoyed listening to that. So that was, sorry, that was the first episode. I should have also yeah, said that's, that's the first of, episode. Yeah. Part 2. The Singing Sands While the caravan waits at Lop, Tigana slips away to meet with a stranger. Unseen by the rest of the party, the diplomat is provided with a vial of poison. He tells the man to wait three days and follow them into the Gobi, by which time Tigana will have dealt with the others and secured the thing of magic for his master Nogai. The journey across the Gobi begins, and we are given extracts from the journal Marco Polo is writing, explaining the hazards of a desert of sand, but more importantly, the bad temper of the Doctor, which he has had to put up with for the last three days. I really laughed. Like, I laughed so hard, because he's writing in his journal at this point, Marco Polo is, and he writes that he's had to put up with insults from the Doctor for three 30 miles each day for the past three days. And I'm just like, oh my God, how did the doctor not get abandoned on the side of the Silk Road? <laughs> like, um, We get this narration, which I think is unique in, I think, in, Doc- in Doctor Who stories. And so, so Marco Polo um, narrates the long sections of travel yeah. um, as though he's writing in his journal. I think originally it was going to be different narration between different characters but they decided mm-hmm. just to give it all to mark eden and have it as though it's marco Polo's journal which i think yeah. makes more sense yeah i think that's a good so point. yeah they, this is how we kind of skip over a lot of the these long journey periods as we just sort of slip into and we get this sort of map so again i talked i talked before about how they they shoot this in like it's pretty much like a play but for some elements they pre-record so stuff like with the exploding bamboo we get later and i think the sword a sort a couple of sword fights some of more dangerous stuff they pre-record including mm-hmm. stuff with the graphics so they have this indiana jones style map that kind of follows the journey um, which in total is two and a half thousand miles i think we go on that over this story it's written on my miles. arm in case you were wondering why i was looking at that <laughs> I, wrote it, I was wondering that but i wasn't gonna ask i wrote it on my arm because i i knew at some point i might refer to it but yeah so this this story takes place over several months dang one night at camp marco plays chess with ian in the large tent whilst the doctor sulks susan sits outside under the stars and is found by Ping Cho. The desert is peaceful, and Ping Cho explains they should wait for the moon to rise. Susan is reminded of the metal seas of Venus. Looking out into the desert, they spy Tigana walking away from the camp, and decide to follow him. Which is a horrible decision. Oh, yeah. Like, 
These two 16-year-old girls, what are they going to do if he is up to anything suspicious? He is a grown person. But these are also the types of things that Susan lives for. Yeah. At this point, I mean, we know he's sus because he looks and acts suspicious. We know he's sus because he got a vial of poison. Yeah, but Like we have been told. They don't know that. This is dramatic irony, you know? They They don't. But if you see someone sneaking away in the dark, like, of course they're not up to anything good. He might be in for piss. You you best not be like skulking away in the dark just to go to the bathroom. My my dad has has w- traveled through the desert, and you just bury it in a ho- you just if you're going to the toilet, you just bury it, dig a hole and bury it. You wander off, you dig a hole, bury it, and you come back. So I don't know if this is that suspicious. Okay, okay, but like he just looked suspicious. Yeah, and it turns out <laughs> that they're right. I'm just saying if someone's skulking <laughs> off in the desert. It might be for other reasons. Okay. So, so it actually just occurred to me, the reason the Doctor is also sulking in episode two is because William Hartnell was ill this week. Mm. So mm-hmm. he, the Doctor has like one line in episode two. Yeah, he shows up like five minutes until the end. Marco, Ian and Barbara are preparing to turn in for the night. Marco comments on the stillness of the air, indicating a sandstorm approaching. Susan and Ping Cho struggle to keep up with Tagana, but spot his silhouette on a dune. Ping Cho sees something else as well, a large cloud rolling in towards them. A sandstorm. The caravan is too far to run. The two duck down as the wind sweeps over them, pelting them with stigging sands and grit. The wind around them grows to a fever pitch of howls and chattering sounds like the laughter of monkeys. It is a terrifying sound. Yeah. If I heard that in real life, I think I would die. Yeah. So this is again, this is a something that Marco Polo in one of his in his um story about the singing sands or the chattering sands. And it is actually a phenomenon, I think, where the sound of the wind, it creates mm-hmm. like aud- auditory hallucinations where people think they hear singing, they hear mm-hmm. people calling mm-hmm. out their name to them. And it's like, you know, you can understand why people think that there are like, you know, demons in the sand or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, there probably are, but also the, the sound that they made for the episode was terrifying. Back in the tent, they can hear the sounds from outside. Ian describes it as if all the devils in hell were laughing. Marco claims to have heard it before to sound like singing or a choir of voices. Barbara goes to check on the two girls, only to find them gone. She tries to push her way out of the tent, but is stopped by Marco. The howls carry on into the night, the two girls clinging together behind a sand dune. To Susan, the wind sounds like a voice calling out her name, and for a second she thinks it might be Ian come to find them. She calls out, and a large figure appears walking towards them through the storm. Only it isn't Ian. Tagana stands over them. Terrifying shriek. Yes. Mm. I, I, at this moment, yes, he's v- definitely, yeah. like, hulking over He looks him. like a bad guy. Yes. It doesn't help that he's like dressed in, he's got like a villain goatee and he's, you know. Yeah. <laughs> he's got a really sharp uh, hairline. Yeah. He's got, he does have a villain does goatee. He have a widow's Peak sort of. No, I think it's just straight across. As the storm begins to quiet, the group in the tent get ready to brave the outside. They are about to leave when Tagana arrives with the two girls. Marco scolds them but they all decide not to tell the Doctor who has slept through the night. 
It lulled him to sleep. Yeah. Yeah. The voices of all the devils in hell screaming outside. And he was like, <laughs> meh. <laughs> like, oh, I really like yeah. this, this soundscape. The journey across the desert continues the following day. And that night, Marco Polo again recounts the progress they've made in his journal. In the morning, the party all wake to find that the water gourds have been cut in the night. Only one remains from their initial water ration. Marco suspects bandits, who are known to attack caravans. There is a potential oasis five days travel from where they are. The only other option is to turn back. After some debate, Sagana volunteers to ride on ahead to the oasis and bring back water. The sun is high during the day, and the limited water is rationed amongst the party. The doctor in particular seems weakened, and the others beg that he be allowed to rest inside the TARDIS. Marco relents, allowing Susan to take the old man into their caravan. Arriving at the oasis, Tagana smiles to himself. After drinking his fill, he pours water out onto the sand. Here's water, Marco Polo, he cries. Come for it. End of episode two. Mm, still a bad guy. Yeah. Still wasting water. We do, in the episode, we do see that it is Tagana who cuts the water girds. I just... We do, yeah. I just, there are some bits of it where I streamline, because it's just, it's literally the thing happens and then they respond to the thing. Yeah. Watching it, it's fine, but then just reading it, it becomes quite repetitive, so... This one, this episode had a lot of nonverbal action in it. Yeah. And this is one where I, like, particularly missed a lot of the text going yeah. across the bottom where i was just like i have no idea what happened it's been quiet for too long and i just realized that so yeah uh i think this is where the novelization is definitely better in terms of a the scope of the distances and b like the stuff in the desert and all that is mm -hmm. is a lot uh is a lot better there's definitely th this serial i think earns i quite like that it's episodic in terms of each episode has a kind of has a different location and a different thing going mm -hmm. on. Although mm -hmm. it does feel like each episode has one thing going on and then a little bit of fluff. Yeah. I mean, they could have probably um, concentrated it a bit more and put it down to probably five episodes. Five or six. I think I think around episode five, I really started to, to lag a bit. But maybe it's because I'd <laughs> already read and watched it twice before. <laughs> yeah, that's on you. You... <laughs> You went above and beyond. We did not. The first two times I went, I, I went through the story, <laughs> I really enjoyed it. The last time it started to drain me a bit towards the end. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to lie. Oh my gosh. All right. Episode three. Part three. 500 eyes. What has happened to Tagana? Marco writes in his journal. The warlord having failed to return, the caravan continues on its slow journey through the Gobi towards the oasis all right i have a question yeah so we we know tagana made it to the oasis we know the oasis is five days away yeah um how did he get there so quickly um I, are, are we just editing. skipping okay we're just like he did take five days to get well, there he i think there's also a line he says that his horse is the best um, okay. That's also not. So maybe a, he got there in two days. Yeah. I don't like. But also, I don't know if it's five days travel for a caravan. Which, right? As a long-legged man, mm -hmm. I walk so much faster on my own than I do with a group of people. So I can completely and I can see. Oh, okay. 
But as a short-legged bisexual, yes. I also walk very quickly. Does your sexuality change the speed at which you travel? Um, no, but I think like the internal rage that happens. Inside the TARDIS, the doctor is woken by a drop of water on his cheek. There is water streaming down the walls. Condensation. He calls for Susan, and the two of them grab cloths to collect the water. Outside under the hot sun, the caravan has come to a stop. The doctor and Susan appear from the TARDIS, exuberant with a container of water. Marco is angry. The old man had said they weren't carrying any water. But the doctor explains that it's only condensation from the inside of the TARDIS. The word is foreign to the Venetian, but Ian explains that like the tents, the TARDIS was heated during the day and the outside cooled at night. Which is a cute little science talk from our cute little science teacher, Mr. Chesterton. Yeah. Again, having Ian be a science teacher and Barbara be a historian, I love that it comes comes up. As well, before this, Ian, when they're up in the mountains and they're saying it's too cold for the fire and Ian corrects him saying, oh no, it's just as low oxygen. So he does, he gets some, mm-hmm. yeah. We have, we have to think about what, what badge we're giving him for this, um, for this episode. Bolstered by the little water, the caravan moves on, finally arriving at the oasis where Tagana waits. When asked why he didn't return to them, Tagana explains he encountered the bandits that sabotaged them waiting at the oasis and had to fight them off. Fearing they might return, Marco decides that they will stay until the next morning and then move on. Barbara doesn't believe the warlord's story, and when alone with the others, she points out that there is no sign of a fire. Surely the bandits would have needed one. This just made me think about, you know, when there's like a group of people and they all only have one shared brain cell? Yeah. This is this is when Barbara currently holds the brain cell. Yeah. Well, I think... Everybody has different smarts. Mm -hmm. The Doctor has big space smarts. Ian has Mm -hmm. very practical smarts. And Barbara has the the logical smarts in terms of (laughs) Mm -hmm. like, Susan, I don't know. She's doing her own thing. She's made a friend. Um, Susan's the wild card. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's made me think of that bit in um, Always Sunny. when. Oh, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) She's definitely, hey, guys, here's a flaming skull. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Before they leave the next day, Marco takes back the TARDIS key from the Doctor, and the box is once again locked. Finally emerging from the desert, the party arrives at the town of Tonghuang. Once again, the TARDIS is set up in a courtyard, outside the shops and bustling businesses. Ping Cho explains that Tonghuang is a famous city, known for its many temples. Barbara asks if the Cave of a Thousand Buddhas is nearby. Marco says it is, and that there is also the Cave of 500 Eyes. There is a story about the cave. Supposedly the walls are painted with 250 faces of evil men, the Hashashin, who at one point lived there and got their name from the drug they used, Hashish. This is the thing that goes in a hookah? Well, you can put lots of different things in a hookah, Um, but yes. Okay, I've I've never actually smoked through a hookah, I just... Like vaguely remember that that is something that goes in it. Maybe I accidentally ordered one once, thinking it was a smoothie. What? How do you manage that? Because the menu was in Arabic, except it had English bits underneath it, and it just had the flavors, uh, as in like the fruits oh, that were in it. So I thought oh, it was. No. So I just read the fruits and thought that sounds great, and ordered it, and it was a hookah pipe. And it probably would have been fine, but I was like seventeen. So did you give it back? 
Were you confused? What did you do? I can't remember. <laughs> I think I think probably the staff were like, wait, hang on, who ordered this? Oh, um, but yeah. So with the hash the hashishin, hash is can is a cannabis leaf, isn't it? Yes, yes. But also I've heard in reference to the hashishin, it talked about it being poppies, so opium. Okay. Well that makes more sense because I was thinking like like cannabis does not make people insane. Opium fits more with the description I get when people talk about mm-hmm. so I wonder it could be like a combination of things. I I don't know. Right. I didn't I didn't look up what specific because it says they use hashish, but okay. it feels like opium when they describe it, when they describe these people. So I don't know. Mm. Drugs, basically. Drugs. Drugs. Bingjo says she knows the story of the Hashashin and the warlord Hulagu who put them to death. She's willing to tell the story, but later, as it needs preparation. The Doctor and Ian stand a little way off. The Doctor intends to use their short stay in Tunghuang to work on repairing the TARDIS. When Ian reminds him that the key is back with Marco Polo, the Doctor, with a smile, produces another key. A copy he made when they were at the Oasis. Later that evening, inside one of the apartments, they all gather to watch Ping Cho tell the story of the Hashashin. The performance is accompanied by music and takes the form of a lyrical poem with props and fans. The story tells of how the Lord Aladdin forced men into his service by giving them the drug Hashish, and that those men would commit violent acts for him in exchange for its continued supply. When the story is over, there is uproarious applause. Ian leans over to Susan, telling her that the word assassin comes from the word hashashin. Did you know that that's actually true? Yes. That's or mostly true? Well, I think th- this whole story is true. The hashashins were real people. Yes, yes. Um, I was just talking about like the, the etymology of assassin. Um, I knew, I think I heard that there's an Eddie Izzard routine where she says... The Hashashin, and and she like pretends to be stoned, but an assassin. I think that's the routine. That's where I first. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah. I love that. Um, oh, that's funny. Like with Ping Cho, um, there's some actual history blended with not so actual history. Um, mm-hmm. So when it's quite funny because Barbara is like, "How oh, are we near the cave of a thousand Buddhas, which is a real place?" Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you look on the, if you scroll I down did. the document, yes, I, did. I stuck a bunch of pictures of, it's so pretty, it looks in, like in, it's so let's go, let's go there. It's a series of caves in which there are various different art styles on the, all the walls. There are like carvings, there are statues, there are paintings, there are massive giant statues of Buddha into the cave on the outside. Mm-hmm. If you're listening yeah. right now, just on your phone, Google the Cave of a Thousand Buddhas. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, hang on, so, so it's a, it's formed of a, syst- a system of 500 temples, um, southeast of the center of Dongquang. Um, I also found the um, the Temple of Ten Thousand Buddhas, but that was, I think, made in the in the fifties. But it's where the, all the golden Buddhas making like funny faces. Oh are. yeah, that's a yeah. different thing. That's modern. But yeah, uh, the, okay. I, this is a, this is the point where I was looking through. And it's like I want to go. I want to go on this journey. I want to go to these places. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I saw those pictures and I was like, ooh, maybe yeah. I want to go. Maybe I want to go see that. Yeah. And and Tung Huang is also that's that's one of the ones that is definitely a real place because it is mm-hmm. the one. So, um, John Lucarotti, who is the writer, 
for these for this serial. Um, he had previously written a radio series about Marco Polo, and it was like a kind of pet interest of his. Um, he he is a British writer, but he worked in Canada with uh, Sidney Newman on, and then also wrote for the Avengers, as in the British TV show The Avengers with Sidney Newman. So that's how he ended mm-hmm. up on this. But so he was asked to write about Marco Polo because it's something that he's obviously already fascinated with. So stuff like this. So when Barbara mentions the ca- the cave of 10,000 Buddhas and then Marco Polo is like, ah, but have you also heard of the cave of 500 eyes, which isn't a real place. The cave of 500 right. eyes isn't a real place. Um, but it's definitely a more budget friendly version <laughs> of, of the thousand Buddhas. Like imagine trying to recreate the cave of 10,000 Buddhas. Yeah. That would be something I kind of, part of me wishes that in the novelization, I think you could have said maybe of tweaked it to be the cave of 10,000 but just because of the visuals of them going there mm-hmm. would have been nice um so yeah so again so two bits of real history we have the cave of 10,000 buddhas or series of you know the, all the caves of 10,000 buddhas um and the story of the hashishin is real but then the cave of 500 eyes where the hashishin hid isn't real um that that sort of yeah. it's sort of a bit of sort of fantasy glue yeah but I just okay, think it's though. funny. That she's like, hey, what, what about we go to this amazing monument? He's like, how about we go to this tiny cave instead? Right. How about we go to this one where it has evil yeah. spirits locked yeah. in it? The only members of the party not present at the performance are Barbara and Tagana. At that moment, the warlord is some miles away in the mountains, standing in the cave of 500 eyes. He casts his eyes around. Soon another man emerges from the shadows, Malik. The small man leads Sagana into the cave to a wall that opens by turning a stalagmite. Do you know what the difference between a stalagmite and a stalactite are? Yes. So a stalagmite is going up and a stalactite is going down. Um, okay. I, the way I was told to remember it is it takes might to push up and if you hang something down, it will be tight. Oh, okay. Thank you. I just didn't know and wasn't going to look it up. I think that's right. I'm now written. <laughs> I don't mean to second guess you. What I just didn't this whole know. Ser- series is going to be is me stating confidently a fact and then going, ah, oh, shit, is that true? You're like, wait, maybe I just not. said it was true. Is it true? Like, I'm just asking you like you are the professional on everything that I don't know <laughs> instead I mean, of me just looking it up. I think I think that's 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 what Which I. Which is the premise of this whole series because I'm watching classic Who for the first time and you know a lot about it but this is like geography and like (laughs) chinese history and shit you know (laughs) (laughs) i think that's what it is um (laughs) inside is waiting a third man who greets tagana warmly with news of nogai the armies are preparing to attack awaiting news from tagana The warlord tells them of the magical caravan and his plans to steal it for Nogai. Together, the men plot how they will attack Marco's caravan on the next leg of the journey. Only to be interrupted by the older man, Tagana was followed. There is a woman in the outer cave. Barbara looks around at the stone painted with elaborate monstrous faces. She inspects the artwork depicting the Hashashins moving deeper into the cave system. A hand emerges from the darkness clamping over her mouth and pulling her into the shadows. 
Back at the town, Tagana arrives to find the others all in a panic. Barbara has apparently gone exploring on her own and no one has seen her for hours. Marco and Ian are combing the town for her. Susan remembers Barbara being interested in the cave of 500 eyes. Knowing Marco will forbid it, the doctor Susan and Ping Cho sneak away. But they ask someone how to get there first. Yes. And that's a really funny encounter because they're like, how do we get to this cave? And he's like, what cave? And they're like, we know you know what cave it is. Yeah. (laughs) Tell us how to get there. At the back of the cave, Barbara is bound and gagged. She watches her two captors play dice. With horror, she realizes they are playing to see who will get to kill her. Following the doctor's lantern, he, Susan and Ping Cho enter the cave. The light from the lantern catches the quartz eyes set into the walls and seem to follow them as they delve deeper. Susan spots something on the floor, Barbara's shawl. They begin to call out for her. As they are searching, Susan looks up at the wall. There is a horrible painted face watching her. Its eyes move. Susan screams. So loud. Yeah. That's a really loud scream. Like, this one is... It, it hurt my ears hey, to she, listen to this. She's got to earn that money. That's what her job is to turn up and scream. And by I golly, know, she'll do she it. She did it. She did it. Yeah. But she blew out everyone's eardrums in the process. Just wait until Melanie Bush in in the 80s. I I saw something about her recently. Yes, she's she's coming apparently she's going to be in series 14. Yeah. At time of listening to this, maybe you've watched that. But yes, she she's she This will be out before 14, right? I depends how long it takes to edit this fucking episode. <laughs> I think this this might be my favorite one of the seven, just because yeah. I really liked learning about the real locations that inspired yeah. this episode, and also the images of the cave. Look, I mean, it just, it's just gorgeous. Sort of, yeah, it's sort of these painted. Again, look, uh, it's worth looking at the photos because you can see like these painted faces in the walls, mm-hmm. and obviously they've seen in a textbook. Um, you know, images of the cave of uh, a thousand, the caves of a thousand Buddhas, and they're trying to. We recreate that on a tiny, mm-hmm. like the smallest soundstage the BBC have, Lime Grove. Next time on You Know Who. I really love that he makes a friend with yeah. Kublai Khan. Like, warlord of warlords, the doctor is now BFFs with. Yeah. Because they're both old and whiny. in pain thanks for listening to you know who if you want to see more from me and jonah follow us on instagram and tiktok at you know who podcast and if you want to support the podcast tell your friends and family give us a rating if your podcast app does that if you want to hear your name at the end of each episode become our producer at patreon.com backslash you know who podcast speaking of which special thanks to our producer kathy blasher 